lost a loved one recently? Do you find it hard to move on with your life? There are lots of questions and a quest for a solution. Where do you start? Welcome to From Morning to Morning with your host, Rabbi Mel Glazer. Rabbi Mel and his guests are here to guide you through the different stages of grief and help you heal from your loss. You'll come away with a much better understanding of how you can move forward. Now, here's Rabbi Mel. Hello, everybody. It's good to be back together. I'm Rabbi Mel Glazer at, uh, uh, here on Voice America on the Empowerment Network. If you want to call me up and ask me a question or talk to me, my number is 888-346-9141. That's 888-346-9141. So I had invited a guest who is not here yet. And he is going to, when you eventually hear him, talk about the question that I wrote you about in the introduction, and that was about men and women healing. Do men heal differently from women? And I think it's particularly, while I'm waiting for him, I think it's particularly appropriate Because this past week, 49 of God's children were killed in a a club, you know, in a nightclub. It was a gay bar, and you've all read about it, and you've all heard about it. So I'm going to veer off a little bit from the original topic, and because I want to talk about why bad things happen to good people like that. Now, they didn't do anything wrong, but they were killed. So you have to ask yourself the question, what's going on here? What is going on in our world? We, of course, feel for their survivors. We feel for their families. We feel for the first responders who were killed trying to protect them. We feel for anyone who was, whose life was taken uh, in Orlando at that nightclub. And yes, it was a gay bar, and people are saying, of course, that the one who killed them Uh, was anti-gay. Some people say he was gay himself. Whatever he was, he was angry. But that's not what I want to talk about right now. I want to ask about why bad things happen to good people. Why do bad things happen to good people? After all, these wonderful people were just dancing and having a good time. It was 2 a.m. when this happened. So you know they were having a good time. So I want to quote a little bit from my teacher, Rabbi Harold Kushner, who wrote the book, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. And I may have told you this before. He once uh, told our, our colleagues, our rabbi colleagues, at a rabbinical convention, when he was asked this question, he was asked, Rabbi Kushner, You named your book, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. 
Why did you not name your book, Why Bad Things Happen to Good People? And he said to us, because had I named my book, Why Bad Things Happen to Good People, the answer would have been three words only, because they do. And I couldn't get a publisher to publish a book consisting only of three words, even if my name was on the front of the book. So he said, bad things happen to good people because they do. I never got a chance to ask him why good things happen to bad people, which for me is a bigger problem, but that's, we'll talk about some of that some other time, perhaps. Now, Rabbi Kushner knew what he was talking about because when he was ordained as a rabbi, and he's now 80-something years old, so it was a long time ago. When he was ordained as a rabbi, so he made a deal with God. And his deal with God was, I'm going to take care of you. I am going to present you to my people. I'm going to teach your holy words, in return for which I expect you to take care of me and keep me safe. And that was the deal that Rabbi Kushner uh, made with God. And then bad things happened to him. He had a son who died at the age of 14 from what is called progeria, which is old age. He aged too quickly. It happens. Doesn't happen a lot, but it happened to Rabbi Kushner's kid. We have pictures of his bar mitzvah, Rabbi Kushner's son, and there were pictures of him and he looked like an old man. He had white stringy hair, little of it, and he died shortly after his bar mitzvah. I think he was 14 when he died. And when he died, Rabbi Kushner had a crisis of faith because he had made a deal with God. And God, he decided, broke the deal. God did not take care of him. His son died. So how, asked Rabbi Kushner, could he keep believing in God? And he thought about that, and he thought about that, and he thought about that, and he studied some sources, post-biblical sources, and he came to an aha moment. You see, Rabbi Kushner was raised like you and I were. And that is when we think about God, we think about, the we see the image of an old man who's sitting on a throne in heaven, uh, wearing a crown on his head. He's like the big grandfather in the sky. And he's in charge of everything, everything. And, and that means when bad things happen, he's in charge. He's responsible. And when good things happen, he is also responsible. He's in charge of everything. So Rabbi Kushner decided that that was not a God he could believe in anymore. He just couldn't after what had happened to his son. So he created a different view of God. And I agree with what he 
created and I accept it as my view of God. And it goes something like this, although if you read his book, When Bad Things Happen to Good People, you'll understand it much better. Uh, He's a poet who's a rabbi, or he's a rabbi who's a poet, what have you. So my interpretation is the following. When God created the world, he gave us three different kinds of law. First, he gave us natural law. Natural law means that if nothing untoward happens, the sun is going to come up tomorrow and uh, nature will take its course. Now, you would think that that there's what's the big deal? Of course, nature will take its course. But that means if nature takes its course, that means that when there are hurricanes or tornadoes or floods or forest fires, uh, that's nature taking its course. And so people die from that. He said that is not God's fault. That comes from the laws of nature. The second set of laws was uh, what I call ethical laws. And that means that if you're an ethical human being, you'll be rewarded. You will be rewarded for being an ethical human being. So when you do something good for somebody, you, you feel good about it. You know that you've done something good and you feel good. The third law um, is the laws of history. The laws of history mean that we, when we were exiled from the Garden of Eden, we are wandering through the world and we will end up at the Garden of Eden. So the question applies, obviously, to the, uh, the killing, the greatest killing that we've had in America. My guest is here, Sean Doyle. Sean, are you there? Well, he's almost ready. Sean? I am here. How are you? I am just fine. It's good to have you. Good to be here. I had a few technical difficulties. Technology is great when it works. (laughs) I was just talking to my producer about that. How come it doesn't work when it's supposed to work? (laughs) So let me tell you people, my listeners and friends, a little bit about Sean Doyle. First, what I wanted to find out about Sean Doyle, so I went to, where else do I go to, but Google. And on Google, I saw this picture of this handsome, young Canadian actor whose name is Sean Doyle. So I Googled him and decided... That's not my guy. Not that, not that my guy is not handsome and beautiful and all that, but he ain't young no more. So, so then I went to Amazon because he's written books. Now, let me give you a list of books that he has written that we are not going to talk about tonight. He's written over 20 books. How many books, Sean? Yeah, I'm, I'm working on book number 20 now. Oh, my God. I can't understand how you do that. So he's written books called Jumpstart Your Motivation, 10 Jolts to Motivated 
and stay motivated. To get motivated and stay motivated. You wrote a book called Jumpstart Your Leadership, 10 Jolts to Leverage Your Leadership. Jumpstart Your Business, 10 Jolts to Ignite Your Entrepreneurial Spirit. Jumpstart Your Creativity. Well, uh, ordinary people, extraordinary spirit. Well, you get the point. He's a business guy, okay? But we're not, he's not here to talk about business. Uh, the book that interests me the most is a book that he wrote called The Sun Still Rises, Surviving and Thriving After Grief and Loss, which we all know is true, but he wrote a book. Now, let me read you some of the testimonials from that book. Every day, many people lose loved ones and face the grieving process. They suffer while coping with the loss of a child, spouse, parent, friend, or sibling. It is perhaps the most difficult and devastating challenge any of us face in our lifetime. In this book, the author supports the idea that you can support and thrive after grief and loss. Well, there's other testimonials, but um, I'll, I'll leave you with that. Read his book. You'll, you'll see. So, Sean, we were talking yesterday when we met each other, and you told me something. Uh, you gave me a personal example of why you wrote this book. As somebody very special member of your family died. Could you, tell, could you tell us the story briefly? Sure. Uh, I was married for 32 years, and uh, one evening at home, uh, my wife uh, felt ill, and so uh, kind of the typical, we had been married for a long time, got ready to uh, you know, take her to the hospital, and uh, unfortunately she collapsed and called the paramedics, and that evening she passed away very suddenly. So at the age of 54, uh, I was uh, a widower uh, and kind of got up on Saturday morning and realized that I'd faced a tremendous tragedy and uh, went from being married to being a widower literally overnight. Uh, as it turns out, later on we found out that it was a brain aneurysm and she just died literally instantly. And so I was kind of faced with the whole journey of you know, adjusting to being a widower, adjusting to being single, adjusting to being alone. And I kind of went on a whole journey of exploring, you know, what does this all mean? And uh, because I've always been a speaker and a trainer and a consultant, you know, I realized that there was probably a lot of information out there, and so I started studying it. And I also became kind of a student of everything that I've taught about motivation and goal setting, et cetera. So I, I went through a journey, and the result of that journey was really writing this book called The Sun Still Rises, Thriving and Surviving After Grief and Loss, because... I really want people to understand and know that grief is not the end of your life and you can not just survive uh, a tragedy uh, such as this, but you can also thrive because life is precious and uh, it is possible. So that's what I wrote the book about. Those are exactly the topics, Sean, that we've been talking about on this show for several months. Mm -hmm. And I have also, like you, suffered loss. My daddy died two days before I turned 12 years old. 
Wow. And, and my life changed. That's not a good age for your daddy to die. Trust me. No. Yeah. So I felt um, I was wandering in the desert of my grief and really had no idea what I was doing. So I wrote my three books and I studied and I got a doctorate in uh, grief and counseling. And here I am on the radio with you. So hmm. we are kindred spirits, you and I, because yes, we, are. we know the secret. The secret is, and all my listeners have been through this, or they wouldn't be listening to us. All my listeners have had a life loss in their families, and they wake up the next day, and they are clueless. They just don't know what they're going to do. They're different people. And they have to work on becoming new people because that's the way life is. They have to become new people. So uh, we're going to have to take a break now. And when we come back, I'm going to ask you how men and women grieve differently. So prepare yourself, my friend, because the exam is coming. I'll be okay. back. Find out what makes the most successful people tick. Keep listening to the Voice America Empowerment Channel. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com Believe it or not, the Bible talks a lot about grief and healing and can be a powerful source for us to move forward. For example, after Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt where they'd been slaves, they wandered in the desert for 40 years before God would let them into the promised land. God only wanted those who'd been born free, who'd never known slavery, to enter Israel. Those who had been slaves had to die out before their descendants would be allowed to enter the Promised Land. Find out more in Rabbi Mel Glazer's award-winning book, And God Created Hope. Available at Amazon and in Kindle format. When you're wandering after a life loss, you're really wandering in two directions at the same time. Part of you wants to go back, and part of you wants to go forward. That was also true of the Israelites when they were wandering in the desert with Moses. They didn't want to go back to being slaves, of course, but they did want to go back to the familiarity of home in Egypt. It was predictable and known, and they were afraid, like everyone is, of the unknown. Find out more in Rabbi Mel Glazer's award-winning book, A GPS for Grief and Healing, available at Amazon and in Kindle format. Success starts here. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. It's your world. You are listening to From Morning to Morning. To find out more about our program, visit GriefOK.com. Again, that's GriefOK.com. Now, back to From Morning to Morning. Hi, everybody. We're back. My friend Sean Doyle is back. He is the author of the book, The Sun Still Rises. Uh, We've been talking about, uh, right before the break, he told us that his wife had died. And so uh, he wrote this book a while ago. When did you write the book, Sean? 
probably about it's probably about probably about three years ago, two two or three years ago. Okay. And you remember that day like it was yesterday, right? It is forever embedded in my memory. Yes. Forever, I know. It's it's terrible when that happens. Yes. That's the way it goes. So, um, you know a little something about grief. So, uh, talk to us about how you think men and women grieve differently. Yeah, I think the, the topic of men and women grieving differently is, is a most fascinating one. And the thing that I would say to all the folks listening because I think this is such an important concept, is that there is no one way of grieving. And I think that probably the, the biggest thing that I've run into, uh, you know, writing the book and having written the book and talking to hundreds of people who are suffering from grief is, you know, people want to define how someone should grieve. So before I even talk about the differences between men and women, I, I want to say that we really can't define you know, how someone grieves, what's the proper way of grieving, because everybody grieves differently. Um, that being said, though, uh, there is some interesting research uh, out of Harvard that it kind of uh, is a theory that there's kind of a male model for grieving and a female model for grieving. And what's interesting is some females may go with the male model of grieving and some males may go with the female model of grieving, but but generally speaking, um, you know, the, the female model emphasizes connection and expression of grief openly and you know, not feeling reluctant to express the grief or to connect with other people about their grief. Well, that's kind of the, the female model. And the male model is kind of keeping grief to themselves, work hard, move forward, don't lose control, and you know, kind of really focus on going in a forward direction. Now, I can't say whether either one of those are the right way or the wrong way, but generally speaking, uh, that's how people tend to grieve. And I think it's really important to recognize, you know, for yourself, you know, what model you're, you're in and what model you're most comfortable with. Um, because I do find that, generally speaking, in my observation, this is not based on research, that men tend to move on quicker than women do. Uh, for example, I see a lot of cases where men you know, remarry sooner than women do if they've been widow, a widow or a widower. Um, but I think that ties back again to this model of a man saying, I, you know, this happened, I understand that it happened, I acknowledge it happened, there's nothing I can do about it, so I'm going to move forward. I read that very article two days ago mm. while getting ready for you to be on the show. And it's such a fascinating uh, study and article that came out of that study. Um, I, what I was thinking about was, you know, we uh, have learned that men are hunters and women are gatherers. Yes. And it sounds like that carries on in death as in life, or rather in grieving as, as, in, as in living. That is, that men go out, somebody dies, and men go out and find, you know, go try to shoot the next uh, bull, 
or whatever the animal may be so they can have dinner the next day while women, you know, talk to their friends and cry and, and are yes. sad. And, and so the model is the same model. And, but what I like most is what you said is that uh, since there's no right way to grieve, sometimes women will use the male model and, and men will use the female model. Absolutely, and I'm a writer for the Good Men Project, which is the, the goodmenproject.com, but it's a site that really examines uh, kind of a lot of the ideas about what it means to be a man, about what it means to be a good man, and a lot of the topics that we write about on the Good Men Project is kind of shattering stereotypes, if you will. And, you know, I, I wrote an article recently on the Good Men Project called, you know, Big Boys Don't Cry, or Do They? <laughs> yeah, because as we're, as we're raised up in, in our culture, you know, you're at the football practice and you, you know, get hit and you get up and you're crying and the coach is like, shake it off, let's go, toughen up. You know, big boys don't cry. Let's move on. You know, be tough. Be the big man. So there's a lot of cultural signals that we get growing up that tell men, particularly, you know, not to express emotion, to be tough, to move forward, to get up, dust yourself off, and move on. Uh, so right. I think that also kind of enculturates those ideas for men that are grieving. The image but I would that really I encourage, is- you know, male listeners out there to, um, you know, be willing to express their emotions when they need to. I, I see the image of, a you know, somebody who, in a baseball game who's hit by a pitch ball. Yep. Same thing happens. You don't show no emotion at all. Excuse me, any emotion. I'm supposed nope. to be an intellectual. So right. you don't show any emotion at all. You get up and you walk to first base. And you don't talk about it and you don't. Certainly don't cry about it. You're you to shake it off. <laughs> yeah, you shake it off. That's right. Shake it off and you think about stealing second base. That's what you do. <laughs> yep. I, I don't know what happens in, in women's baseball when one of them gets hit by a pitch ball. I've never really paid any attention to that at all. So I don't know what happens when a woman gets hit by a ball. But I don't think she... I think she uses the male model. I think she gets up and she goes to first base and that's it. She doesn't, right. you know, and she doesn't, she may talk to the first base umpire about it and she may talk to the first baseman about it, but she doesn't cry about it. She does. She just plays baseball. That's just right. what she does. Uh, you say that, that, you're not sure which one is is a better model. Well, they're models, they're models. I mean, whatever right. we, use, right. we use. I'm always thinking about what helps the mourner better. Forget about um, men model and women model. Mm-hmm. Okay? And we'll just try to, to degenderize them and say... One way of dealing with grief is to go to work Monday morning, and the other way to deal with grief is to stay at home or make phone calls and talk to your friends and talk about your beloved. Uh, So what do you think in general? 
Forget about men and women. What do you think in general about those two models? I, I think that in, in my mind, based on my personal experience, uh, whether it's male model or female model, there does need to be uh, a venue for expressing that grief, for expressing those thoughts and ideas, uh, whether it's verbal, whether it's journaling, whether it's being part of a support group, you know, whether it's talking to your best friend, whatever it is. But I think whether it's male model or female model, if folks who are grieving do not have a place to vent or to express those feelings, I think that's when people have a hard time healing and moving forward because those, are, those feelings are never quite resolved, in my opinion. I think what we have to do is to get men to grieve more like women. And, and you and I were talking about that a little bit yesterday on the phone when you were talking about um, teaching people in a, a, a company how to react to the death of a coworker or the death of a parent or the death of another loved one. And yet our society um, doesn't give us days off that we need to even deal with that. No, not at all. In, in, in fact, I, I chuckle at some of the corporate policies. You know, well, if you if you lose a spouse, you get five days, and if you lose a grandparent, you get two. I'm like, where do these arbitrary numbers come from? Right. <laughs> For uh, you know, grievance policies, and I also find in companies when somebody passes away who works there, nobody really knows how to handle it, what to say. You know, should you speak to the person when they come back? Ignore it. You know, it, it's it's a it's a huge problem in corporate America where people really don't know how to handle that loss, either of someone who works there or someone who works there losing one of their family. They don't they don't really know how to handle it. Which is not any different than the rest of us. Correct. Except in its particular context, uh, a work environment, which is which may be easier for them because, because uh, when they go back to work, let's say, when a man goes back to work, you know, his, his wife died or his mother died or, or a friend of his died. He, so he's lost control of life. Mm-hmm. And he realizes there are no rules anymore because somebody who he loved died. So he'll go back to work and in a way, I believe, it's a good thing because he gets himself back in the rules and the guidelines for his work position, and then he's in, he may be better off mourning that way because at least he has some control over his life. When somebody dies, we lose control over our life. Yes. We go through the death rituals or whatever our religions may have for us, um, I know Judaism the best, obviously. We have plenty of death rituals, and the point and purpose of death rituals is in a situation where you have lost control of your life to give you back some of that control. You can't get it all back, but you can get some of it back. Mm-hmm. And you know what you do. You know what you're supposed to do. So maybe going back to work is not such a bad idea. Well, I, 
I love what I do. I'm a professional speaker and a trainer and a consultant, and I did my first live uh, training and speaking about two weeks after. And I actually remember thinking to myself, I can be loving what I do because I do during the day, and then I can grieve at night. So at least for that right. uh, seven, you know, six, seven hours during the day, I was enjoying myself because I was doing you know, something I truly love. But then I would go home to an empty house at night and say, oh, boy, back to the, uh, back to the grief. Back to the tears, yeah. Have you, ever, house. Uh, have you ever spoken about grief? Or do you just speak about business and other things? No, like I've, I've actually spoken about it uh, as part of uh, talking to people about motivation. How do, you, how do you stay motivated after great adversity? And so I do use that story sometimes to, to talk about overcoming adversity and staying and getting and staying motivated after. You know, it's so interesting because before you, before you came on, um, I was talking about the 49 people who were killed this past week. Mm. And I, I asked similar questions and I talked about what Rabbi Harold Kushner uh, said before he wrote his book, when bad things happen to good people. His son. A wonderful book. Yeah, it's so powerful. It's just so. He just wrote another one called The Nine Essential Things I Learned About Life. Hmm. He's 80-something. I don't know whether he's going to write another one, but the the first book is, 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 if not his best, certainly one of his best. And he talks about, you know, how do you grieve? He lost his son. How do you do that? Because the way we grieve is is the way others who come in contact with us will grieve. So sometimes you talk about the elephant on the table. If we go back to work, let's say, uh, and we don't talk about the death of our wife, and my first wife died too, as we had spoken about, mm-hmm. and we talk about it. So we're giving off the signals to our coworkers, don't talk about it, leave me be, don't ask me any questions, I just want to get back to work. And I always thought that was terrible, but maybe it's not terrible, because it at least gives me a place to go. It gives me rules and guidelines that give me back some of my control. So when you were giving a talk in the morning, you were back in your element. I was. And I've, and I've worked for companies in the past where, you know, someone had a loss and they would say before the person came back, you know, they'd send an email out to everybody saying, you know, when, when, when Joe comes back, whatever you do, don't say anything about his loss. He doesn't want you to talk about it. He doesn't want you to address it. Just, Pretend almost as if it didn't even happen. He was, just wants to be normal. You know, their, their words. Yeah. I wrote really interesting. which uh, ended up in one of my books about holiday meals after somebody has died. Mm-hmm. What do you do at Christmas dinner, for example, or the Passover Seder when a grandfather has died this past year? You know, what do you do? Everybody doesn't know what to say. And and the elephant is on the table, and you don't know what to say. So 
I, I make suggestions and I say the first time that that happens, you leave his seat empty. It's a sign of respect. And before the meal, you go around the table and you tell stories about grandpa. I love that. What that does is breaks the tension, allows you to laugh as well as to cry. <laughs> and, and then you can eat your turkey dinner in peace. And so you don't, you don't have to worry about being in tears and not being able to talk about it. We have to find ways in our society. We, I agree. We're still looking for ways to observe 9-11. Who knows what's going to happen, how we're going to find rituals to observe the death of 49 wonderful people in the nightclub last week. Yes. I mean, it takes so long to create these things. And I, I just don't know. 9-11 uh, happened a long time ago, but we're still sort of searching. Well, we got to take a break. And we'll talk some more about uh, men and women grieving and grieving in general when we come back. We'll be right back. Don't go away. Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. When you're wandering after a life loss, you're really wandering in two directions at the same time. Part of you wants to go back and part of you wants to go forward. That was also true of the Israelites when they were wandering in the desert with Moses. They didn't want to go back to being slaves, of course, but they did want to go back to the familiarity of home in Egypt. It was predictable and known, and they were afraid, like everyone is, of the unknown. Find out more in Rabbi Mel Glazer's award-winning book, A GPS for Grief and Healing, available at Amazon and in Kindle format. Believe it or not, the Bible talks a lot about grief and healing and can be a powerful source for us to move forward. For example, after Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt where they'd been slaves, they wandered in the desert for 40 years before God would let them into the promised land. God only wanted those who'd been born free, who'd never known slavery, to enter Israel. Those who had been slaves had to die out before their descendants would be allowed to enter the Promised Land. Find out more in Rabbi Mel Glazer's award-winning book, And God Created Hope. Available at Amazon and in Kindle format. Success starts here. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. It's your world. You are listening to From Morning to Morning. To find out more about our program, visit GriefOK.com. Again, that's GriefOK.com. Now, back to From Morning to Morning. We're back. My friend Sean Doyle and I are back. Sean is the author of, so far, 19 books. Um, most of them, I don't know how to deal with that, really. 19 books. Okay, and, and the one that we're talking about is his book about grief after his wife died called The Sun Still Rises. And one of the things that Sean and I were talking about 
on the phone when we met each other was that we don't like when the sun still shines, rises, <laughs> the day after somebody dies. How could God, whatever way we believe in God, how could God make the world just keep on its way? I mean, it should stop. It should just stop. Because my wife died, right, Sean? Yeah, the, the, the arrogance of the world to continue after our loss. <laughs> and though <laughs> the sun still rises, uh, eventually, with God's help and community's help, we, we learn to become new people. I, I talk a lot more about community than I do about God. People will come up to me a lot in my work and they'll say, Rabbi, will you define God for us? And I'll say, I tell you what, I'll define God if you define love. And they have this look like I'm crazy. <laughs> they say, you're a rabbi, you're supposed to know these things. I say, I'm a human being, I don't know any more than you do. I don't know who God is. I know when God is present in my life. At my wife's funeral, God was present in my life. When I married my both of my wives, God was present in my life. Um, I'll tell you my favorite story. Um, when my 30, however old son is now, was about three or four and I would tuck him in bed and I would put the blanket over, you know, and make sure he was fine. He said to me, Dad, where's God? And I'm thinking, oh, please don't ask me that question. I don't know the answer. I don't want to tell you I don't know the answer. So his mother, may she rest in peace, was the director of a Jewish day school. So I said, maybe we should ask your mother. No, I'm asking you, where is God? So I said, well, the best I can do is this. When I tuck you in and we say the prayers at the end of the day, um, and I give you a hug, I feel that God's presence is with us. He said, okay, good night. So I walked out of the room and I said, wow, that's all it took? Why didn't I think of that three years earlier? I could do it, you know, <laughs> I become a theologian for my three-year-old. So the next night, I tuck him in, I cover him up, uh, we, we say the prayers, and he looks over my shoulder and he says, good night, God. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so then I walked out of the room and I said, I, I don't have to go to rabbinical school. I know how to do this stuff. I can handle it, you know? Uh, so I, I don't know anything. Well, I know some things about God. I know what other people have said about God. But I don't know who God is, but I know when I feel God. It's like mm -hmm. love or justice or any of those great kinds of uh, terms that that we feel, but we cannot describe. However, I know a lot about community. So when somebody comes to me after a death, 
as they always do, and I'm with them before the death, and I'm with them at the funeral, and I'm with them after the funeral, and I'm with them, you know, after that. And they come to me for counseling, or I go to their homes, and I say to them, you have to come to the synagogue for Sabbath services. I don't like Sabbath services. So I say, you don't have to like them. Sometimes I don't like them either. They're boring. I don't like the rabbi sometimes. Doesn't matter. There's other people there for you to be part of the community with. You need them and they need you. And you have gifts that you can give to them and they have gifts that they can give to you. You know, it works every single time. Every single time. Absolutely. Because it helps the healing. It's, it's, and so when Moses went on Mount Sinai to get the Ten Commandments, there was an 11th commandment that I'm telling you and my listeners, but nobody else knows this. It's a secret 11th commandment, and that is we are not allowed to pray unless we eat afterwards. We have to have refreshments. <laughs> so Friday night, it's a law. I'm telling you, it's a law. So Friday night services, we have sweets. That's especially nice when we have family services because we have, you know, four and five-year-olds and we stuff them with brownies and cookies and then send them home. Their parents mm-hmm. are not happy about that. Uh, but Saturday morning, we have lunch. And every week we have a group of what we call the Bagel Brigade, men and women who prepare lunch, and some cook themselves, and some uh, buy it at Costco, and as long as it's dairy, it's fine to bring into the congregation. And we we have blessings over the wine and the and the challah, the bread, and then we sit, we give lunch, and then we sit on tables and we talk to each other. So. Most people think, isn't that nice, that we actually have lunch? It's wonderful. And I say to them, it has nothing to do with it's wonderful, because most of the time we have the same meal. We have tuna fish, we have egg salad, we have bagels. Well, that can get pretty old pretty quick. And I've been here nine years, and it gets pretty old pretty quick, I got to tell you. But I say to them, That's not why we do it. Why do we do it? Because when we're in the synagogue, we are dealing with the relationship between man and God. And we're praying to God to, and we're thanking God for the fact that we woke up this morning and for the fact that God lets us do good things. Uh, One of the people ask me about evil all the time. You know, and uh, I mean, for example, uh, why did this guy kill 49 people in a nightclub? And I said, I don't know why he did that, but I do know that good people will rise up and will help take care of the survivors and the families. And they have. And they donate money and food, and the amount of food that was donated was staggering. Yes. And, And that's so... That's not a reason that evil happens, but it's a response. So we go to the synagogue part. We go to the religious 
service part, and that's dealing with the relationship between man and God. And then we go to have lunch. It has nothing to do with the food that we eat. It has everything to do with the relationship between man and man. Mm. Because I say you cannot uh, be a good Jew, for example, and I would suggest this applies to every religion, just by praying to God. It's not enough because it's just not enough. God doesn't talk back to you. You got to talk to real people and you have to apply the lessons that the humble rabbi gives in his sermon to your real life. Oh, is that <laughs> why we do it? So we have a good time talking about that, but I really believe that. There's man and God, and there's man and man. And you cannot be complete without both. Well said. Do you have a religious tradition that you... Do you go somewhere? Do you do religious stuff? Oh yeah, oh yes. We we go to mass every Sunday. Good. And I would agree with you. It's it's not the mass, but it's also being around the people. And I think relating to that, uh, a very important lesson that I learned uh, through my grief journey was being surrounded by people who just were endlessly supportive. You know, whether it was my best friend, my uncle, my sister. My parents, you know, where I could, I knew, you know, I could, for example, pick up the phone and call my uncle in California, you know, at 12 o'clock at night, he would say, what's going on? Right. And just having a community of people that love you, care about you, but also understand, you know, what you're going through and can give you advice or not give you advice, just listen. Which is the most important thing they can do. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm I'm a big fan of what you're not supposed to say to a mourner. Oh yes, I have a whole chapter about that in my book about what what you should not say, the ridiculous but, things that people say to people who are mourning. I know. I think we've written the same book, Sean. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> I may have to go out and buy your book. I don't know <laughs> uh, because I've read some chapter headings and stuff and. And we do both talk about many of the same kinds of things, like there's no right way to grieve, there's no clock for the soul, it takes as long as it takes, don't be stupid and say dumb things that you think are helping but don't help, uh, because we don't know what to say. Nobody ever taught us what to say. That's not our fault, it's society's fault. Society teaches us how to accumulate friends, um, things, but society does never teach us, never teaches us how to let go of anything. Absolutely. Sense, so we don't know what to do. So when your wife dies, somebody can come and say, oh, well, she's in a better place now. Oh, God needed her more than you. Oh, I get so... <laughs> I'm that needed another angel. I know how you uh, feel. Yeah. I don't want the damn angel. I wanted my wife. Who yeah. I just fight with yesterday. You know, I want her back. So um, I'm going to go read your book. I promise. Uh, Great. It, it's such an interesting field, this grief. What you just said about going to church, 
I didn't say about going to synagogue because what I left out was that when you go to a religious service, not only are you surrounded by people who love you and have the brains not to try to comfort you with stupid words that don't do anything, but you're in the same room with people who have just lost a loved one. Yes. And so they get it. And that's where the support really comes. It's like a secret club that you now belong to. You can't what? talk about it because most people don't understand, but, but there are those people, you know, who belong to the same secret club that you do. And that, that's the best. Absolutely. I mean, it's terrible that it has to be, but that's the best. There are some synagogues that I've been with that have services morning and night. And there are prayers that you say after somebody dies. So you say uh, for a, um, a wife for 30 days, for a parent for 11 Hebrew months. A lot of people continue to attend services even after their period of saying what we call Kaddish, which is a hymn of praise to God after Kaddish is over because they want to come and support the people who have suffered the same loss. We are, unfortunately, my friend, coming to the end of our show. I am told that we have a minute to go. So first, I want to thank you for coming and being my guest. Oh, thanks for having me here. And uh, if somebody wants to get a hold of you, how do they do that? Uh, my website is called SeanDoyleMotivates.com. That's SeanDoyleMotivates.com. Okay. And that's the way they can uh, reach me and see what I do and contact me and all that fun stuff. Okay. And people who need me can get me at Rabbi Mel at GriefOK.com. Rabbi Mel at GriefOK.com. Sean, thank you so much. Thank, thank you. you. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you again for joining Rabbi Mel Glazer for From Morning to Morning. Please tune in again next Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time and 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. We're wishing you strength and hope in the next week.